Seems like every week, one or two or three things happen on the internet that make absolutely no sense to me. The youths asking celebrities to step on their necks. Yes, that is a thing. The great fast food fried chicken war of 2019. All the feral hogs. I could go on. My guest today has a really amazing skill. She can take those bits of internet absurdity and tell us what all that craziness says about us. Her name is Gia Tolentino. My name is Sam Sanders. Today on It's Been a Minute from NPR, we talk about her new book. So, Gia, she is a staff writer at The New Yorker, former deputy editor at Jezebel. And her new book, it's called Trick Mirror, Reflections on Self-Delusion. Just came out a few weeks ago, and it's already sitting pretty high on the New York Times bestseller list. Trick Mirror is a book of nine deeply reported essays that attempt to make sense of our current moment of Internet insanity. It is full of equal parts, questions and answers. It makes sense with a capital S more than a lot of other stuff I've read this year. G and I talked about two weeks ago while she was on book tour. She was in D.C. I was in L.A. We bonded over our shared Texas roots and then we got down to business. Enjoy. Hi, I didn't know you were, San- you were from San Antonio. 210, Countdown City. Second favorite city in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> I have to, Houston has to be my favorite. Here's the thing about Houston. Uh-huh. I, <laughs> it is so culturally rich. It just has everything going on. Yeah. But, but it's, it's overwhelming like, in its vastness. Yeah, it's like a nightmare. It's like three hours of freeways. It's like oh yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like you can't. There's no public space. Like, but yeah, it's just like for the food alone. But oh, totally. yeah, San Antonio is the most fun city, I think. Like, well, because everyone's just chill. Everyone's chill. The food's also great. It's not and like cheap. up its butt like Austin. Yeah, yeah it's cheap. Yeah. Well, Austin, I don't count Austin as Texas anymore. <laughs> yeah. I still freaking... love it though. I still, you know, it's like nature wise. You know, it's nice yeah. to like be like get like by like a creek really fast, which like yeah. Houston. There's like you know, like, yeah. like I was there two days ago and it was, you know, I got off the plane. And it was 103 degrees and, it, you know, and I was like, wow, I forgot what yeah. this was like. Yeah. Well, I got to say, I am so excited uh, to be talking with you today. So you are very, very popular. You've been on the circuit. You've been everywhere for this book. This is, I, I think, your fourth NPR interview for this book. I know. So I, I bring this up. One, like, I'm so happy that we are, uh, we get to be the, like, watch what happens live interview. <laughs> like, we're, like, at that stage in the game where you're just like, let it all hang out. One, I love that. But two, I love uh, that you actually wrote about uh, the prep or lack of prep for your interview with Morning Edition. Because... Oh, yeah. Yikes. <laughs> You did this thing for Grub Street. Yeah. <laughs> and they had these writers talk about their diet. Um, can I read a bit of uh, what you wrote? So this was you keeping like a diary of your diet. And you kept a diary of the day and night before your interview with Rachel Martin of Morning Edition. And you wrote about Wednesday night. I sincerely regret to say that we went to Sing Sing the four of us, and fully did karaoke for six hours until 2 a.m. Six hours of karaoke on a weeknight. It was objectively upsetting, and so was consuming large quantities of Fireball at the age of 30, and yet there we were. And then you continue, I love this so much, Thursday, July 25th, in the morning, before your interview with NPR, you say, I became conscious at 8 a.m. and started howling, club me, at my boyfriend as he was leaving for work, but he refused, so I got up and got ready to tape a book interview on NPR. I had set up my stovetop coffee maker the night before, apparently, and I made some coffee, but could not really drink it. 
I drank water on the train and meditated on my shameful lifestyle. <laughs> That's golden. I did not mean to evince any disrespect for Rachel or Morning Edition whatsoever. No, it is I'm merely sure it a sign of, of my inability to um, not send <laughs> off a friend to L.A. in style, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know what? I bet it was all worth it. And also, like, that reveals to me a thing that I think makes your work stand out so much. Like, there is this inescapable candor you have as a writer and a person all throughout the book. And you do this really hard thing to do. Like, you help explain the difficulties of modern life for us by being an open book about modern life and you. Thank you. Yeah. And I think that not a lot of writers thread that needle right now as well as you do. And when I think of, like, how much of my personal life I want to bring into my work, it can be scary sometimes. Yeah. Do you... Do you ever feel scared about sharing so much of you? Well, I think that one of the things that the internet, one of the things that I write about in the book and one of the things that has always, that has started to bother me about the internet is that the internet sort of, you know, being based around social media profiles, it it kind of, it frames this idea of selfhood as something that should be, you know, really consistent and also consistently attractive mm. and, you know, and kind of, quote unquote, on brand. Mm-hmm. And I, to me, you know, everything about, monetized selfhood seems like such a nightmare that the only way to approach these systems that are completely entangled with our work and our life is just to I don't know how long this is going to work out for me but (laughs) but my you know the only way to make it bearable is just to be fully yourself right and Mm. not to calibrate how you come off and you know I think I'm it's it might become more of a high wire act later. Like I've been like during book promotion, I've been like, oh no, maybe I should put more thought into how I'm coming off. <laughs> but it seems like the only way to, you know, I think one of the beautiful things about the internet and all of these systems and, you know, capitalism and patriarchy, mm-hmm. it's like we're all trying to still be human. Yeah. And for me, the only way to do it is just to really be myself, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And as far as like, unfortunately, I feel I was... It might be this might be a function of my personality where I'm just like this no matter what. And it also Mm. might be a part of, you know, being born when I was and growing up, you know, being in elementary school when people started to get computers at their house and AOL and stuff. These these for better or worse, these structures of self surveillance and self broadcasting that are now kind of generalized. Those have Mm. been available to me. Like their infancy was also my infancy. And I formed myself around them in a way that. I never really worry about showing myself online because I just always have. You always have. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, it, it's like we end up in this spot now, you know, where the Internet has reached a certain level of maturity. It's almost as if if you live a life and don't tweet about it, was it a life? It's like the, like if the tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it thing. There's some days where it feels like you haven't really had a day unless you've shared about it on social media. It's yeah, weird, huh? well, and, and this is something that I, and this is, again, something that I write about. But, you know, one thing that strikes me as really interesting, you know, and just kind of this fundamental difference between the Internet and real life, even though these worlds are, you know, completely merged at this point. Mm-hmm. You know, in real life, you can just walk around. You can walk around and you can just be and people yeah. will see you. But on the Internet, you can't just be. You can't just walk around, right? Yeah. You have to actively communicate and yes. slash perhaps perform in order to be seen. And mm-hmm. just that basic mechanism of having, you know, like a parallel world. A performance, yeah. Yeah, and, and just having to communicate to be, to interact at all. Um, that is, 
the internet is only kind of exacerbating and systematizing and monetizing the structures that have already existed in ordinary life. But there are certain things that are different, fundamentally different, and that to me is one of them. Yeah. What did you sing at karaoke that night at Sing Sing? I mean, six hours. What didn't I sing? I think like there were like one of my friends put on, you know, the Whitney Houston national anthem and then and then another one just Listen. started screaming like absolutely, oh you know, blasphemy, God. like don't you dare. But that's you know? hard to pull off. Oh, I know. I know. But, you know, wow. after six hours, this I think we, we ran through the entire Alanis Morissette catalog, you know, the, the basics. Um, <laughs> I love it. What do you sing at karaoke? My go-to is Push It by Salt and Pepper. Oh, that's a really good one. That's one of my friend's go-tos. It's yeah. real you know, good. It's easy. It's about 12 words. <laughs> and it's very repetitive. Yeah. There's no actual singing. You're just talking. Yeah. And everyone joins in with you. Yeah. <laughs> it is a nice way to like get the crowd amped without having to do that much work. Yeah. <laughs> it's so great. Have you ever had bosses, editors, colleagues say... Well, if you keep tweeting like this, it's going to diminish your credibility. It's going to hurt you as a writer. Do you ever get resistance? You know, I actually, so in the acknowledgments of my book, I thank David Remnick, the editor-in-chief of The New Yorker, for not firing me when I tweet about my bong. (laughs) (laughs) Um, As far as I see it, it's my responsibility to be a decent person Mm. and to know where the line is. Mm. Like, I would rather, I think that there are a lot of worse ways to tweet than you know, exposing your occasional like ordinary stupidity, you know, (laughs) like I, I think I would. And so actually the answer is no, because I think, so I used to work as an editor at Jezebel, which was part of the Gawker. I remember. And, you know, that was, I became really uh, painfully, brutally aware of exactly what the lines were for getting yourself in trouble on the internet. (laughs) And, you know, and I crossed it sometimes or the website crossed it sometimes. And I think, I think I learned I think I learned what was, you know, what was borderline and what was okay and what was over the line. And, you know, again, I think um, I think it's it's interesting we're in a time where newsrooms are having to delineate policies for how we can, how reporters yeah. can and can't present themselves on the Internet. But yeah. one thing that's different about being at The New Yorker is that I... I report plenty of the time, but I mm-hmm. also write a lot of opinion. Mm-hmm. And even when I do report, it's, you know, the, the New Yorker is not a newspaper, right? I can I can express my political opinions within the piece. Yeah. And I actually find that so freeing because I actually I find yeah. that so much more honest than having to pretend to some ostensible, um, yeah. Yeah. you know. Pretend that you have no personal thoughts on politics. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah. I don't think that that's possible anymore. It's, you know, the, this stance of, uh, you know, objectivity is kind of a false one. You know, we're all we our views are all shaped by our position. And I find it really nice to be able to show my cards and try to be fair from there. Yeah. I, I don't know if I could handle a world in which I really had to. Um, be a different version of myself in a realm that is inextricable from my entire life, you know? (laughs) Yeah. All right, time for a break. When we come back, Gia Tolentino tells me about the time she went on a reality show when she was only 16. Stick around. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sir Kensington's. Introducing new ranch and vinaigrette dressings in a variety of tasty flavors. Made with simple, quality ingredients and always non-GMO. Sir Kensington's declares all salads welcome because they believe a salad is more of an open question than a statement. Start yours with a dollar off your next purchase at SirKensington's.com slash Sam Sanders. Sir Kensington's. Abandon all bland. 
Take a deeper dive into the art, lives, and legacies of Billie Holiday, Ella Fitzgerald, and the women who played a vital role in inventing American popular music. I'll be seeing you. Watch videos, read essays, and hear the full Turning the Tables playlist at npr.org slash turning the tables. I was actually going to ask you to give me an elevator pitch for the book. I think of it as, I mean, it's a book about how the self is constructed, you know, in context with systems. And yeah. so it's about basically nine systems that have shaped my sense of self and that mm. nine things in our culture that seem particularly conducive to giving us an idea of ourselves that seems just as likely to be wrong as mm. as it is to be right. Mm. And so the Internet's definitely a central part yeah. of it. Yeah. Well, because it's like... It's one of those things where, like, we're not going to fully understand just how much the Internet changed everything about life for a few decades. It's changing everything. Yeah, it's the central organ of contemporary life. Like, every single thing is routed through it. You know, sometimes I feel silly because I'm kind of on the Internet beat at The New Yorker. I write about really dumb Internet stuff sometimes, like memes, you know. (laughs) And I I sometimes feel ridiculous because there is something ridiculous about writing about a meme for The New Yorker, you know. Well, what's one you did recently, like... There's this phenomenon online of random people asking celebrities to step on their throats. Yeah. And Explore. Okay. And, and it was good, you know, you, but so. it's like, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you don't want to make these things too deep, but it is interesting when you have a whole generation of, you know, teens on Twitter begging Harry Styles to kill them. You know, it's it's, <laughs> it's not not worth writing about. But, exactly. You know, sometimes I feel silly for writing about the Internet because, again, I, I think one of my biggest you know, irritations with the internet. And this is a, you know, much more weighty problem. It's sort of, like I said earlier, it's this parallel universe that can keep us really busy figuring out how to explain our lives while the systems that actually structure that our lives are being controlled by the people that had power, have power Mm -hmm. and always will. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's sort of this separate sphere that, you know, cordons off our attention and often our power and sense of civic duty and all, all of these things. Even if you avoid it, you live in the wor- you live in the world that the internet structures. Mm-hmm. You live in the world that Cambridge Analytica rot, you know. And so, <laughs> yeah. And there's just, and you know, it feels silly to, you know, ignore it. Ignore it, yeah. Yeah. So in this book, you are very candid about a lot of stuff. You write about using hard drugs. You write about going on a reality TV show in Puerto Rico as a teenager. Mm-hmm. You write about your fraught relationship with religion. I realize as soon as I'm asking this question, it's it's impossible for you to answer it. But like, was there anything off limits, and why? Oh, there's lots. I guess of you're not going to tell me. <laughs> there's lots of stuff that's off limits. I, you know, I I write about myself very readily. I've always you know, shared. I mean, as a person, I'm like this, you know, if like I meet a stranger Mm -hmm. at a bar, like my friend's 10 minutes late, you know, by the time my friend gets there, I, you know, the stranger and I will know, like, you know, I will have found out, you know, what his deepest secret is, you know, he'll, he'll (laughs) know my worst fear is, you know, it's, I'm like this. But Mm -hmm. that being said, I am also careful. I'm more careful about what I show of myself than, than what it might seem like, you know, I think with that essay. So there's one essay in there about how I grew up, which was 12 years in the school that's attached to the second biggest megachurch in the country and what it was like to lose my religion and what, what came to be the, you know, what I left with, which is this desire for kind of ecstatic communion and transcendence and, you know, self abnegation that I would later find through like rap and drugs, you know? (laughs) And, um, I think I adopt the strategy of it's like if I'm going to talk about something, the details will be in there for a very specific reason. I noticed you did not name the church or the school, this religious church or school, yeah. in the 
book or the New Yorker article, and you didn't even you talked about the church at length with Terry Gross. Didn't name it or the pastor. Yeah. Well, part of that is because, you know, the church, it's a big deal in Houston. It's, you know, a relatively big deal in Texas. And I didn't want I didn't want that essay to seem like it was, uh, you know, if I was a reporter for the Houston Chronicle, I would be reporting on that church and its financials and, you know, yeah. tons of stuff there. But it's it wasn't about that church. It was about devotion and it was about mm. ecstasy. And it mm. was about ecstasy as a link between virtue and vice. And it was about, you know, it was about something much more internal and universal than what that church specifically did. I, mm. I, I didn't want it to seem like it was about them when it was about really ideas of God, I think. Yeah. I, as a church kid myself yeah. who grew up like black Pentecostal, oh, wow. son of the church organist. Oh, wow. That's so like, cool. It was, yeah. Well, that's a word for it. <laughs> <laughs> but it hits so close to home oh, because the thing no one understands about church kids, mm-hmm. like it's assumed that we are totally divorced from quote unquote the world and yeah. we aren't engaging with the secular. We see the same stuff the other kids see. Yeah. We just have to do this balancing act, this like these two separate performances. You perform mm-hmm. for church and for school and for your parents, but you're also like doing all the crazy weird stuff that all the other kids do. Yeah, and you're you're moved by the same things for the same reasons, and you exactly. have the same desires, and you have exactly. the same temptations. And I sometimes wonder, you know, we're talking about self presentation a lot, and you know, the calibration of yourself, and and that's what I guess that's what the book is about. And you know, there is something like you just said about. I thought about this when I went on this reality show my senior year of high school. and I, Which is just amazing. One, let's back up and tell the folks what the show is. Because I, when I read it, I was like, this should not be allowed. <laughs> I, know. I know. Well, so this was 2004. And so we didn't know what reality TV would turn into yet. You know, it was mm-hmm. still a novelty. It was still like very newly post-survivor, sort of middle stage, real world. We didn't really know. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I just... I. I spent a month of my senior year of high school in Puerto Rico filming a show called Girls versus Boys Puerto Rico, which was for, how old were you? I was I had just turned sixteen. Okay, you know, in retrospect, you know, no parent, you know, no responsible <laughs> parent would ever let their kid do that now. But my parents like were going through some, you know, some stuff. I was yeah. a fiercely independent child, and I was just like, let me go. And <laughs> but one of the one of the things that when I was trying to persuade my school to let me go, one it. My school had already sent two alumni to The Bachelorette, like two men who had graduated from my school had already appeared on The Bachelorette. And I wonder if there's something about, you know, a religious, the like sort of religious panopticon, as I describe it in the book, Mm. like you do have to sort of subtly and constantly self-calibrate how yeah. you're coming off for You get very good at performance. You get Naturally. very good at performance and it gets Im- very quickly. And it gets embedded and not even good at it, right? It, it, it seeps its way into your bones. Yes. And that is, I think that there are a lot of things in my life that have prepared me for this sort of hellish era of self-broadcasting. <laughs> and I think that the church, like you said, it's one of them. It really, it's, you, you're, you are forced, because as a teenager, to fit those ideas of virtue and acceptability, you have to perform. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is what we're doing with the internet you know we're not going to realize till 20 years from now how we'd be different if we hadn't had to adjust ourselves very slightly but constantly around all of these structures that determine our lives exactly and and like there's some weird things that i'll still see myself doing now like i at this point really i only go to church for funerals you know and like i still believe in god but i'm not a church goer yeah but there'll be these weird things i do where i'm like dang it's still in my bones like if i'm driving by a church I'll turn down my music 
because I'm like, well, I can't play secular music in front of a church. Wow, house. that's really in my beautiful. Car. You know, though, I think that's like after I wrote that essay, you know, I got so many more. And and for me, it was like. This was Houston, Texas in the Bush era. Like, you know, our cultural oh, yeah. relationship to power was never more deferential and worshipful mm. than it was in, mm. you know, post-Patriot Act America, Texas, yeah. you know, Christian church, all of yeah. it, right? Yeah. All of pop culture was structured around serving the powerful, basically. You know, it was like the era of like yeah. Laguna Beach, even just the the most lowbrow pop culture was still, you know, wealth, you know, whatever. Oh, yeah. And yeah. um and a very prosperity version, uh, like a very prosperity gospel version of it. In, Absolutely. In the fact that like those who are wealthy and powerful, well, obviously they're better than us and they deserve it and God gave it to them for a reason. Yeah, and which is the reason I left, you know, which is really the separation. My my separation from the church was political above all mm. else. And I, mm. I'm i still really in love with the idea of devotion in so many ways. And I, mm. and I think that the way I write is so related to what being a church kid trains you to do, which is to sit down at the, every, at the end of every day and mm. ask yourself how you could be better, you know? Mm. And yeah. and I think and, and little and I'm glad that I have these, you know, these strains of reverence and longing in me, you know, like like that mm. thing like you. I, I'm glad for the sense of mystery that growing up in the church gave me yeah. and that I've never lost. I, like, I feel grateful for that. And it's it, it's the same thing. Like I, you know, I never met a Democrat till I went to college. I, I never met. Wow. Yeah, I never met anyone that was pro-choice, you know, or anti-war. And I and one thing that I. Um, I, I just did my book, my book tour stop in Houston, and it was, you know, it was strange thinking about growing up, never meeting anyone whose political views were like what mine were turning into, mm. and that being totally fine, and me learning to be completely comfortable with that. Yeah, I think like as a writer and as you know, someone you know, people who are engaged with with culture and politics kind of professionally, right? There's no, there's, there are few greater gifts than that, right? Than being, yeah. especially with the internet, right? Like being able to understand disagreement almost as a default state. Mm. I feel really grateful for that being something that the, you know, conservative church prosperity gospel gave me. Yeah, yeah. One more break. In a minute, I asked Gia about my favorite essay in her book, Trick Mirror. It's all about optimization in our daily lives, from the food chains we eat at to the places we exercise. All right, back in a minute. Support for NPR and the following message come from Weston Hotels and Resorts. At Weston, their entire reason for being is your well-being, which is why their wellness offerings are curated with one thing in mind, you. An eat well menu crafted with fresh ingredients, an on-demand fitness gear lending program that allows you to pack light and stay fit, and their heavenly bed that helps you conquer the day by giving you a restful night. Explore at Weston.com, a member of Marriott Bonvoy. It might be hard to pin down what makes a friendship really work. I feel like we're like the Michael Jordan of friendships. Like you can't ask Jordan, <laughs> you can't ask Jordan how he does what he does. He's a freak of nature. But clearly, some people know how to do it. Check out Life Kit's new guide from NPR on navigating the highs and lows of friendship, or subscribe to Life Kit All Guides for all of our episodes, all in one place. I want to talk about my favorite essay in the book. Um, I mean, like, literally, like, punch in the air, being like, she did that. <laughs> um, <laughs> the one on optimization. Ooh. Woo boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> it was so... Well, one, I guess, lay out the premise of that essay mm -hmm. without, I guess, giving it all away. Because sure. I'm guessing half of our listeners will have read this and half will not. So how can we set this up for them? 
Well, I think so. America right now runs on, I mean, it's such an American idea, optimization, you know, the idea that we should be making things as perfect and efficient as possible. Yeah. This has always been an open undercurrent of, of yeah. American industry and yeah. you know, self-narrativization. Mm-hmm. You know, we strive to be better. That's what America yeah. is for, right? We're the most productive workers on the planet. We work the longest hours. Yeah. Like, all of our mythology is this relentless strive for optimization. Yeah, and and one of the things that I think has changed over the last you know, let's say decade, is that capitalism has accelerated to a point where optimization, which was formerly like, you know, something that you would do if you wanted to get ahead, like basically what was advantageous has become compulsory um, Mm. over the last decade in general, I think, Mm. you know, like working all the time, everyone works too much, everyone is basically required to, you know, we have this sense of, you know, inexorable acceleration in labor, in culture, in everything. And the response to that is we have what I think of as optimization industries, sort of, I think of this as, you know, like high-end fitness or wellness or just those chopped salad chains that are in, you know, like popping up in cities like mushrooms after the rain, you know, these (laughs) things that don't necessarily feel like Lululemon doesn't feel like clothes to me. It feels like an adaptive mechanism that will help you, you know, optimize your body. Yeah. And, and, you know, sweet green doesn't feel like food. It feels like a refueling station that will allow you to order while looking at your emails, eat while looking at your emails, replenish Mm -hmm. yourself from the job that makes you send emails all day and continue Mm -hmm. to make the money that will allow you to afford a $15 salad that you eat in 10 minutes at your desk, you know, just at me next time. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this is like, so this is why, um, I wrote this essay because I worked upstairs from the Lululemon flagship store in wow. in, in Union Square. And so it was 17,000 square feet. And I never went in it because Lululemon terrified me. But I had this <laughs> fantasy. Do you remember that children's book from the mixed up files of Miss Basily Frankweiler? Like oh, yeah. where the kids hide in the Met? I uh-huh. was like, I want to do and one. And they fish out chain from yeah, the and they take shower. Yeah, and they take a little sh- They take a bath in the fountain. So yeah. I was like, okay, I'm going to do that, but I'm going to hide for a week in Lululemon. <laughs> <laughs> I would just walk by it. You know, and it's the most ordinary, mundane thing in the world but my you know I'd walk by and my brain was just I would have these little earthquakes and be like what are we doing I would like to be clear about who I'm doing this for and why you know yeah well like you have this wonderful riff on like the very idea of bar class yeah like it's almost obscene that the culture tells women oh it's really fun to strain your body and pay a lot of money to possibly look like a ballerina as a 35-year-old. Yeah, and also to be doing it for these sort of vaguely feminist reasons, right? Like, you know, we've had this this advent of mainstream feminism over the last 10 years, and what we've gotten is just this idea that you should be more perfect, more beautiful, more appealing, more productive for yourself. Yeah. And, and it doesn't seem, that doesn't seem to be an improvement to me, even as I find myself doing that, you know? Mm. And, and I think, yeah, there's something about bar specifically. So bar class, it's like this <laughs> kind of faux ballet, like yeah. it's this, you know, hour long workout class where I, I wrote that, you know, it makes me feel like a race car getting serviced in the pit, you know, it's <laughs> like someone's just adjusting, yes. someone's just adjusting body part by body part till it works <laughs> 2% better and then I'm just back, you know, sending emails <laughs> yeah. on my way to Sweet Green or whatever. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there's never an end. There's never so an like, end, right. So, like, even if you do bar to the point where you look like, I don't know, Natalie Portman in Black Swan, yeah. 
you still got to keep going to bar. Like, there's never a moment with these pursuits to optimize our body where we get to stop. And it's like and with wealth acquisition. It's, it's like with anything. I think we feel systems accelerating. Like, I think in our heads, we're sort of like, at some point, we'll be fine. But these systems, you know, a capitalist system is not set up to do anything but continually accelerate, right? Like, mm-hmm. they, these systems are meant to make satisfaction inherently out of reach. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that it was worth indicting myself and implicating myself in my participation and my eager participation in them. Yeah. So speaking of that indictment of the self, like, have you found ways to push back against this culture of optimization? Like, are you personally able to fight it? And if so, how? Yeah, well, in general, Mm -hmm. uh, there's sort of a... The, the sort of just because you can doesn't mean you should. Mm. Um, I've, I've been like, that's kind of an internal motto for me, you know, yeah. like just because I could take a car right now doesn't mean that I that should, should necessarily just because I the world has allowed me to, you know, Postmates a bathing suit, you know, doesn't <laughs> yeah. mean that I should operate should. like just because I can take advantage of Amazon workers who have to pee in bottles, you know, yeah. to not get fired to, you know, get this thing at my doorstep by 6 p.m. today. Yeah. It doesn't mean that I should. And so I think that what I've been trying to do in terms of me resisting all of these systems is to realize what freedoms are available to me personally to uh-huh. refrain from optimizing and to refrain, you know, from taking the bait to be better or to be more and to be, you know, and it's a strange thing to be thinking about as I am self-promoting, you know, but there are, I think that just that axiom, like just because you can, you know, do you have the freedom to not, then maybe you should not. And I, and I try to operate by that. Yeah. Yeah. One of the most interesting points I found in the essay that I'd never really thought about before you were writing about, you know, athleisure and this culture of beauty and optimization and the way that, like, this version of female empowerment that we experience right now, it says beauty should always be pursued, but yeah. also everyone can be beautiful. Yeah. And so there's this thread in the culture to argue that all women's bodies are beautiful which seems to be this really sneaky way to make sure all women are constantly spending money to be more beautiful. Absolutely. And what you write that I'd never thought about before was just what if we just prioritized beauty less? Yeah. What if, you know, I've all my life I've been looking for a body neutrality movement, you know. Um, <laughs> and I, and I also say this as someone who, I mean, like it's easy for me to say I, you know, I – I have not been monstrously ostracized by the beauty ideal as so many people are for so many arbitrary reasons, yes. right? Yes. And, and, you know, and exp- so it, it's this tension, right, where the, you know, an expanded idea of beauty is a good thing, but there's a way in which feminism has really entrenched the beauty ideal further by by making it sort of like it's made sort of the work of getting it to be this vaguely feminist project. And also, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's made it matter almost more and not less that it's a feminist thing that we believe everyone's beautiful. Mm-hmm. But again, this is one of those things where nothing in our world these days seems like it will deescalate, right? And mm-hmm. if our world is increasingly organized around self-surveillance, you know, 20 years ago, celebrities were the only people that could possibly see pictures of themselves every day. Now it is available to oh, anyone yes. with a smartphone. Yeah. And it's it's impossible to imagine beauty mattering less under these structural circumstances. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You close the essay on optimization with this beautiful riff on the idea of woman as cyborg. Like, yeah. 
the demands of modern life are making women particularly have to just like optimize their body to the point where they're just like becoming something more than just human. <laughs> yeah, well one thing that I think is interesting right now that I, you know, I've been writing about in different ways for a while is that the, you know, the, the Kardashian beauty ideal, which you could argue is now the mainstream one, mm-hmm. it is we have reached a beauty ideal that is impossible to achieve naturally and and not yeah. only impossible it's it's openly so. Oh yeah. Like they don't they're, they're having they're getting chopped up. They're getting chopped and screwed yeah, in they're the getting face, chopped and in the body in and, the back. and they don't try to hide it and and that's, yeah. you know, so we are literally reaching a cyborg beauty ideal and I I think that, you know, and I uh, that that ending is sort of it's one of my ways of making peace with all of this is to understand my desires as fundamentally adulterated by mm. male power, by mm. capitalism, you know, and understanding that I was formed by these systems. I participate mm-hmm. in them. I have benefited from them, mm-hmm. benefited from systems that have punished other people mm-hmm. and kind of using that as a way to understand that any rebellion that I can foment is the kind of rebellion that a, you know, a cyborg formed in a compromised image could, you know, like you're going to have to, if you turn on it, you're going to have, it's going to have to start from a standpoint of implication. Yeah. I love it. You write that, that the, that this cyborg woman is quote shaped in an image we didn't choose for ourselves and disloyal and disobedient as a result. Who is the most, wonderfully subversively disloyal who is the most cyborg woman in the culture right now well it's interesting you know obviously the person that comes to mind is beyonce i don't want to say that she's disloyal right but but Mm. it's it's like she's playing an an interesting long game where beyonce is the most cyborgian human that we have that's true though you're right you know (laughs) she's like she is above human yeah and and she kind of openly is like she you know she used to like the last time she spoke to a reporter like 10 years ago it was for (laughs) gqp she talks about reviewing game you know reviewing concert footage like it's game tape like alone in her room you know yeah she's been playing this long game of amassing this singular power yeah and using it to let's say with the homecoming netflix special to change our focus she says everyone look this way yeah and to you just even structurally make sure that every person that worked on that special is going to have a job in their chosen field for the rest mm. of their life. You know what I mean? Yeah. Making sure that black people are centered and, you know, you know what I yeah. mean? Yeah. And, and like, and Beyonce, you know, increasingly for the last, you know, however many years has been centering, you know, really been denying the white gaze as just totally oh, yeah. irrelevant to her which life. Which is so interesting. And making people do things on her terms. And yes. it's a version, you know, which isn't to say she hasn't completely molded herself to all of the, conven- you know, so many conventional, you know, she is the most beautiful. She's the most hardworking. You know, her body is perfect, you know, all these yeah. things. And yeah. yet there's something about her long-term project that, um, you know, something about homecoming. It was like, you are you are undermining something that needs to be undermined. Exactly. Well, and like, just looking at her career trajectory as a black woman, it is quite interesting. Oh, because yeah. Because she's always been black. She opens her mouth and sings, you hear blackness. Yeah. But her presentation of self has at certain times felt almost white. Absolutely. There are some music videos of her back in the day where she's very fair-skinned with blonde hair, mm-hmm. and you're like, I, I don't know. I can't tell, right? And she also did this thing where she was making music early on in her solo career that was, in some ways, some songs like Straight Ahead, White Pop. Yeah. 
And, like, some of those things, I guess, she had to do to amass his power. But then she got enough, and she just said, uh-uh, we, we are black AF now. Right. And, and that and that question, right, of, like, when it's enough that you can then turn and, and how much you then are able to is a very complex one. But, yeah, it's really interesting. Also, can I say, my ninth say grade cheerleading tryouts were judged uh-huh. by one of the women that got kicked out of the original foursome Shut of Destiny's up. Child. LaToya or Latavia? Latavia. What? I was, like, so scared. <laughs> like, I was, like, petrified. It was... It was honestly the most like it was the great it was the closest brush with greatness I've ever had in my, oh my life. Like goodness. I was shaking in my boots. Like it oh was, my goodness! Oh <laughs> I also the first time I saw Destiny's Child perform was Houston Rodeo, 1999. Yes. Oh my god. Yes. They're for real. <laughs> They're for you real. You know the writings on the wall just turned 20. I it's I can't even think about that. It's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> Last quick question for you from one church kid to another. Yeah. What is your favorite praise and worship song? Oh, my God. I was, oh, my God. Well, wait, let me ask you a question. Were you doing Baby Shark in, like, youth group as a kid? No. Oh, okay. So I was just with a couple of friends last night, um, uh-huh. both of whom had, like, you know, done the whole church camp young life thing. And yeah. we had all learned Baby Shark in, like, elementary school, like, Bible really? class. Yeah, Bible study. Okay, do you remember the, do you remember the little, do you remember the song that was, like, um, and this is, like, elementary school. We were also remembering mm-hmm. this, the one that's, like, um... The big, big house with lots and lots of rooms. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Remember that one? The big, yes. big yard where you could play football. Touchdown. <laughs> <laughs> I remember it like, oh, yeah, it's like, come and join me in uh-huh. my father's house. Like, <laughs> yes. yes. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Oh, man. I am so glad we had this time. It was an honor and a treat to get to just sit with you and talk about these big ideas. It was an honor to talk to you. It was so fun. Thank you for having me on. Thanks so much to Gia Tolentino. Her book is called Trick Mirror, Reflections on Self-Delusion. It's out now. You can catch all of her other writing in The New Yorker magazine as well. And a reminder, you can catch me talking live with another author on September 11th. I'll be in D.C. in conversation with the Malcolm Gladwell on the campus of George Washington University at Lisner Auditorium. Tickets are still on sale. Go to nprpresents.org. nprpresents.org. You don't want to miss it. I'm going to dress up for y'all, okay? I hope to see you there. Aunt Betty's coming too. Okay, that's a wrap. We're back in your feeds Friday as usual. Till then, talk soon.